This morning for our Easter sermon, I have chosen a text from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13, and you are welcome to follow along with me as I read it. You can do so in your own Bibles or in the bulletins that you have in your hand. The, uh, the passage that I am reading for us this morning uh, is in fact a sermon, a sermon by the Apostle Paul that was preached in modern-day Turkey some 2,000 years ago. Paul and Barnabas had been sent out by the church in Antioch, and this is just to set the stage for you. They had been sent out by the church in Antioch to proclaim, to herald this good news of the story of Jesus the Christ unto all of the nations. When they arrive at this particular city, they go uh, to the synagogue that was meeting for worship on the Sabbath day, and there gathered for that worship service are a number of the Jews from the city, and in addition to them, there are also God-fearers. That's what they're called in this text. You'll see me read that particular thing. Those who feared God, they are those who are either converted to Judaism at this point, or those who were at least attracted to Judaism, perhaps because of the beauty of the law that God has given, order that exists in the world, but they're there and they are part of this gathering of people for worship. That's our context. Here now, this living word of our living God, picking it up at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, that is to Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised before his coming. John, that is John the Baptist, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, To us has been sent the message of this salvation. 
for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers. Be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for these precious words preserved for us. Thank you for inspiring Luke, the author of Acts, to write them. We thank you, and we pray that you would speak to us, to our hearts this very day, as you spoke that day at the synagogue. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to wonder what the rulers of the synagogue expected to hear with that simple phrase that we find in verse 15 of our passage. They pass along the message, who knows, they just pass along from one to the next person, over to Paul and Barnabas. Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, perhaps, perhaps they expected Paul and Barnabas to bring greetings to them from other places. Perhaps they expected some explanation of the law of God. Paul himself obviously was a very well-trained rabbi, and he had perhaps come to this letter, this city, perhaps with letters of commendation, with people saying, this is Paul, he's a rabbi, and you need to listen to what he has to say to you. 
this, uh, this word that we have here where it says any word of encouragement, this word encouragement, it can also mean a, a kind of exhortation. Do you have any word of exhortation to give to us? It can mean comfort. Do you have any word of comfort to give to us? Uh, consolation? Can you give us any consolation? So this could be, and probably is, an invitation. Well, it obviously is an invitation for them to address this meeting of the synagogue to at least read the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to teach the Word of God, to somehow build up this body in the faith. Brothers, Do you have any word of encouragement? There's no way. There's no way that they could have imagined what was going to come next out of the mouth of Paul. I imagine the scene like this. I imagine Paul and Barnabas sitting there sharing a a quick glance at one another as if to say, did you hear what I just heard? Did, did Did you catch what they just asked us to do? And I can imagine Barnabas, who, if you recall, Barnabas' name, uh, the interpretation of it, is given to us earlier in the book of Acts. His name means son of encouragement. And whether or not he needed to say this, or again, just a glance may have done it, but I can imagine him turning to Paul and saying, listen, you preach, I'll pray. Okay? You preach, I'll pray, because, brother, the door is wide open. And Paul rises to the occasion by the grace of God and says, O men of Israel and God-fearers, have I got something to tell you? He's going to tell them the most encouraging word that anyone has ever heard. He's going to tell them the greatest story that has ever been told. Now, Luke gives us here the substance of this sermon. I suspect that these are the highlights from Paul's sermon here. But Paul stands up, motions with his hands, men of Israel and those of you who fear God, I'm going to take you back in time. I'm going to take you back in time. And he begins his sermon 2,000 years back. So, so we here are 2,000 years after this sermon was preached. I started this sermon going 2,000 years back. Paul started his sermon going 2,000 years back beyond that to the time when the Jewish nation was in Egypt. They were God's chosen people, and yet they were enslaved, and yet at the same time, as Paul records it, they were growing prosperous there in Egypt, even though they were enslaved there. They were growing numerous by the blessing of God. And Paul then punctuates, he highlights this story, this history of Israel by pointing out to them just some key events over the the history of Israel uh, from the Exodus to their time then in the wilderness that they have to the entrance into the land, the conquest of the land, following that, the time of the judges. And then he takes us to Samuel, Samuel the last uh, of the judges, the, uh, the great prophet, and then he takes us to King David. And in doing that, in going through that history, he covers about a thousand years of history. 
So if we take it from the time of the entrance into Egypt, and then we move that another thousand years to the time of King David, the establishment of this king who is, as is described here, a man after God's own heart. So this is Paul's introduction to the encouraging word. I've got an encouraging word to give you, and I'm going to start it 2,000 years ago. I'm going to give you 1,000 years of history to explain what God is doing. And, and, and what I'd like to do, just real quickly, is point out three things that I think are, are fascinating about this particular history. First of all, as others have pointed out, God is the subject of every verse that is here as this history is recounted. It's, it's not told to us as if this event took place and then this event took place uh, as if those are just the next thing that happened or if somehow they are randomly occurring events. And it's certainly not told to us as if this is some kind of a thousand or two thousand year mission statement that Israel drew up at some point and said, okay, this is the way things are going to play out over history. Instead, This is God's story that is presented to us. And without looking at every verse in particular, the rhythm is this. He chose them. He led them. He gave them. God is the one who did everything here. This is a purposeful, it is a divinely directed history of the people of God. Secondly, uh, the thing to note is that this history is not one of some kind of uniform progress in, and advancement. It's not as if they started off and they were this hapless people who existed here and then God raised them up to this great position. Instead, it is a story, if we looked at it carefully, and certainly if we looked at it through the lens of the entirety of the Old Testament, it's a story of up and downs and downs and up again of the people going down and of God raising them up. And that language is very specific. That language is used. And Paul is using that language intentionally to give them a hint of where he's going, where this story goes. The history itself is part of proclaiming the good news that he has for them. And then the third point here, the third point of this story I want to focus on verse 18 because I think it captures some of the spirit of this history. Verse 18 says this, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Now, that's, that's language we appreciate. We appreciate it because we get that in, in, our, in our way of thinking, in our way of hearing put up with. Uh, we get it. That's a, that's a casual way of speaking. But here we shouldn't see it as just a casual thing. Rather, what we should see here is that this is divine patience. It is divine forbearance and restraint that is being shown over the course of that particular 40 years that were in the wilderness, but over those thousand years that are recounted here and the thousand years that came after that as well. God is long-suffering with his people. His mercy is being exercised, and a preparation here is patiently being ordered by God. The history here is given as if to say, even in this people, even in the people 
that I chose for myself, the people that I loved, the people that I provided for, the people that I delivered, even in them, there is this profound proclivity to pursue their own path. The history reveals this need. It reveals this this expectation of somebody who will come and bring some kind of a better conclusion to this history than what we are witnessing here, what he has testified to in the word. It's an unfinished history. It's an unsatisfying history that is here. So you ask the question when you get to this history, okay, what then is the expectation? What is this history trying to lead us to? Because it hasn't come to a satisfying conclusion. Now, I'm going to use the entirety of this passage to answer that question. The expectation here, the expectation that that history yields is for someone to come, for a king to come, for the promises that have been made to be fulfilled. The expectation is clear when it says in verse 23, for example, of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel. Whose offspring? Of David's offspring. We're waiting for someone, not David. Someone who, like is written of David, will do all of God's will. Someone who is, to use the words of this passage, a savior. A savior. In verse 26, it says, To us has been sent this message of salvation. This people, this beloved, this chosen people of God with their proclivity to pursue their own path, they need a Savior. And that's a word that comes right out of the Old Testament, and it can be used to refer to God himself. But it is often, likewise, used to refer to the people whom God raises up at critical junctures in their history to deliver them out of difficult circumstances, whatever those circumstances were. Now, this story, as it is told to us here, it ends with David, and it ends with a rather exalted position of David. But there wasn't anybody who was in that synagogue that day, not the Jews and not the God-fearers who were there, who thought that David was the final answer to Israel's expectation. Nobody thought that. It didn't need to be said. Because everybody knew that, in fact, while David had a heart for God and a heart to do God's will, David didn't always do God's will. You know that, and you're not Jews who live in the synagogue who had the Old Testament to look at. You know that David didn't always do all of the will of God. They knew that too. David was dead. The dynasty had come to an end And now Israel was scattered all over the place. It doesn't need to be said because they're sitting in a synagogue in Turkey. We're scattered as a people. We don't have a lamb. The promise, the promise was for someone else. A son of David who was a son before David. A king and a lord to come from David who was also David's king and lord. Someone who was after David, but who was before David. Someone who was worthy. That's what we're waiting for. 
We're waiting for a worthy heir to come forth, a worthy offspring. And then Paul jumps forward in the story. He jumps all the way forward to John the Baptist. And in going to John, John is made clear that he's saying, I am not the one. Everybody knows that there's supposed to be one coming. Everybody's looking for the one who is coming. But John wants to make clear, it's not me. I'm looking, I'm waiting with you, but I am not the one. But when he came, John, he came with preaching this baptism of repentance. That's what verse 24 says. Before his coming, that is before Jesus' coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. John, in doing that, in in preaching this baptism of repentance, demonstrated the key problem. What is the heart of the problem for Israel? Why do they keep going up and down and up and down throughout the course of their history? Well, the problem is you need to be cleansed. The problem is sin, from which you must be cleansed and from which you must repent as well. John wasn't the one, but he could tell them what the problem is, and that baptism of repentance helps them to see visually this is the problem. The problem is you are a sinful, rebellious people. So let me use the language of this passage to summarize then. And I'm just kind of taking the positive statements here and reversing them. What do we need? We need an offspring. We need an offspring that comes from David, that comes from Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, that ultimately comes from Abraham, right? Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. We need an offspring that comes from Abraham. We need a king. We need a man after God's own heart, one who will do all of God's will perfectly, one who will be truly worthy. One who will bring the salvation that is needed for the people of Israel as the Savior. One who will not see the corruption of death, and thus who will provide the pathway for eternal life. One who will be the promised one, the promised one who can bring good news. Verse 32, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers... And then he continues on. One who will bring the forgiveness of sins. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Let it be known. This is it. This is the heart of the message of the good news that he brings. Forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you. And one who will therefore free the people. Truly and completely free the people. And that's what verse 39 says. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's addressing those who were there who loved the law of Moses. Clearly, the Jews loved the law of Moses. But in addition to that, no doubt the God-fearers, the proselytes who are there, are there because they are attracted to the God of the law of Moses and to the law of Moses itself because it provides order in the midst of the chaos of the world. But Paul says there's a way to be free 
that you couldn't get through the law of Moses. And the word to be freed there is the word justified. There's a way to be justified. There's a way to be right before God. And the law of Moses couldn't make you right before God. In other words, we need someone to embody and to bring Israel's story to its crescendo, to its resolution. And, and, preaches Paul, his name is Jesus. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He came, and despite the life that he lived, the miracles that he performed, the teaching that he did, and despite all of the prophetic word that was written about him, that anticipated him, despite all of the history of God's people and all of the history recorded in the Old Testament, we didn't recognize him. We didn't understand him. And therefore, those who were in Jerusalem, who didn't recognize him, who didn't understand him, who couldn't see the connection between him and the Old Testament, just like the apostles couldn't see it, they ended up doing exactly what the scriptures said would happen. They condemned him. They condemned him. Though he was guiltless, though he was the worthy one, though he was the man after God's own heart, though he was the one who did all of the will of God, they condemned him. They had him executed. They had him hung on a tree. And Paul didn't need to say it, although maybe in the full sermon as a whole he did say it. Because the law says, that law of Moses says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, verse 29, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. They had him buried. 2,000 plus years of waiting, of looking, of preparing of searching the scriptures. And when the one, Jesus, came, after 2,000 years of waiting for the one, they missed it and killed him. And I imagine Paul pausing right here to let it sink in. In the tomb. They put him in a tomb. And he pauses, and he continues with verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And, and Paul immediately wants to clarify, listen, just so you know, this was no flash quick appearance, that, that real quickly somebody thought they saw something, and that something might have been the image of this one whom they had crucified. Paul says, no, it's not like that at all. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. You can verify this. You can check this. Go check with the people who were the witnesses. This is the critical part then for Paul. This is the crescendo. 
This is the heart of the word of encouragement. God raised him from the dead, verse 30. Verse 33 says the same thing. To us, their children, by raising Jesus, verse 34, that he was raised from the dead, verse 37, that God raised him up. The encouraging word is that God raised him up, that he didn't stay in the grave. And then the encouraging word has a second part that may be a little bit more unusual to us, at least unusual to our ears, but it's an emphasis that goes right along with this here, and that is he saw no corruption. No corruption repeated verse after verse. Verse 34, no more to return to corruption. Verse 35, not to let your holy ones see corruption. Verses 36 and 37 talk about the fact that David saw corruption. That his body saw corruption. But Jesus himself, he saw no corruption. No corruption because he had no sin with which he can be defiled. He was a substitute. He was a sin bearer, but not a sin committer. And therefore, he doesn't return to dust. Corruption is to return to dust. And it is the final word of the curse given in Genesis chapter 3. To dust you shall return. Not this one. Not this one. No sin, and therefore no corruption in him. He is bodily raised, and through him, forgiveness and freedom is proclaimed, and it is offered to all. By this Jesus, everyone who believes is freed. And that's what they heard. And now, You guys are here. You've heard this story. For them, no doubt, this story in all of its completeness, it's the first time they're hearing it. What do they say? What do you say in response to it? I've told this story before. Forgive me for repeating it, but I think of it every, I guess, Easter in particular. I was sitting uh, across the table from a Jewish friend and had an opportunity, not with Paul's eloquence or with this length, to explain the good news of Jesus Christ to this friend. And as I came to the conclusion of it, he looked at me and he said, so what you're saying is that Jesus came to take away Jewish guilt. And he said, because we're pretty good at guilt. And I thought to myself, I thought what I wanted to say is, it's because you're pretty good at law. Um, you're, you're pretty good at the law of Moses. God gave the law of Moses. That's why you feel the depth of that guilt. Jesus came to take away Jewish guilt. I said, yes, yes. And Italian guilt. And Russian guilt. Ukrainian guilt. And American guilt. And Turkish guilt of the people who were there this particular day. We read in the story today, we've already read it, how when the women came, having come from the tomb and having had the experience that they had, they come to the eleven and they tell them what took place. And they thought it sounded like an idle tale. Just a little story. Just a little made-up, nice little story. 
but not the truth, and they did not believe them. How is it with you? How is it with you? God raised him from the dead. That is the testimony. It is no idle tale. Instead, it is the greatest story ever told. It is the greatest history ever written. It is the greatest fact ever to be found out in this world, ever to have taken place. It is, in fact, the very most encouraging word. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit loosed the pangs of death. They tried to seal it up tight, secure it tightly, but he was loosed because he could not be held by death. So Paul gives a warning at the end of it. He says, listen, don't be like what you read in the prophets. In the prophets, it says, when someone comes to you proclaiming this, speaking like this, it's a work that you will not believe even if one tells you. He gives them a warning. Don't do that. Don't dismiss this. And we see in the passage that I read for us that the people are indeed interested. You've got to come back next Sabbath. You've got, to, you've got to tell us more about this. Both Jews and Gentiles say that to him. The next, we, didn't, we didn't read this portion. The next Sabbath comes, and it says the whole city gathered together. Everybody came out to hear what this story was, what had taken place. But it made the Jews angry because there were so many people who were there that they started to deride Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas say, listen, since, I'll just read it now, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is always the response to the word of God, whether from Jew or Gentile, to the greatest story ever told, to the encouraging word that is given. There are going to be some who hear that word and go, idle tale, idle tale. People who are preaching it are charlatans. And there are going to be some who, having been chosen by God, appointed to eternal life, believe in this word. And the call of Scripture to you is believe. Believe in the risen Son of God. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing. He is risen. risen Amen. Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation. We pray that you would help us to walk joyfully in it, to believe deeply, fully, and wholeheartedly in the forgiveness of our sins, in our freedom and justification that has been given to us through the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.